Welcome to the How Did You Get Into That podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an inspiring interview or encouraging message to help you find and do work you love. Now, here's your host, Grant Baldwin. What is up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages? Welcome to the How Did You Get Into That podcast. My name is Grant. It's great to have you here with us today. Hope the sun is shining. Hope life is treating you good. Hope the birds are singing wherever you may be in the world. Really glad that you're here today. We've got a great show. Got a great guest for you. Excited to bring this story and journey with you. It's going to be a lot of fun. Hey, before we do, as many of you may know, I've been a speaker for the past several years, so naturally I get a lot of questions about speaking. Speaking is one of those topics and subjects people are interested in, just trying to figure out how do I actually do it? How do I get bookings? How do I find decision makers? How do I find speaking engagements? How do I get paid to do these things? What do I even talk about? So we put together a free email course that you can download totally for free. You can find that at bookedandpaidtospeak.com. Again, that's bookedandpaidtospeak.com. Download that free email course over there. I think you're going to dig it. All right, let's get into today's guest. Today, we've got my buddy Don Miller. Don is known as an author. He has uh, written several books. One of the books he's best known for is a uh, book came out several years ago called Blue Like Jazz. If you haven't read it, it's a great, great book, kind of a memoir uh, of him kind of processing his own thoughts on journey on life and faith and really good book. And so today he is known as an author, but he's also, he does a lot more in the entrepreneurship world. And so we talk about that evolution. How do you make that transition? Uh, We also talk about how Actually, he wrote Blue Like Jazz and how his back was kind of against the wall of trying to figure out what he wanted to do with life and how to like make ends meet. So it was really, he created it not because out of passion, but he created it because he, he needed a paycheck. And so we talk about that and how you kind of identify what maybe some next steps would be for you as you're processing what it is that you want to do with life as well. Also, be sure to download the bonus material where uh, Don and I, we talk for a few extra minutes. We talk a lot about story and especially how it applies to businesses and companies and entrepreneurship and just even careers. How do you apply story to your business? And that may not make sense at the moment, but I promise you it will as the conversation, as the interview goes on. So make sure you download that. You can find that over at grantbaldwin.com slash Don Miller, or just click on the link within the show notes of the episode, wherever you're listening to this on your computer or your app, mobile device, wherever you may be, you can find that link, click that and download the bonus material where Don and I, we talk for a few extra minutes. You're not going to want to miss that. So let's get right into it. Here's my uh, conversation with author entrepreneur, Donald Miller. Enjoy. What is up, my friends? Welcome to another episode of How Did You Get Into That? Today, we are joined by my buddy, Don Miller, who is an author, entrepreneur, all-around good dude. So what's up, Don? Welcome to the show. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks. Excited to have you here. Now, you are typically known as this bigwig author, but I know you got your hand in a variety of different things. So give us a kind of an overview snapshot of what business is like for you today. Yeah, so I write a book about every four years, and that's definitely what I'm known for in the public. But you know, my day job, I run a company called Story Brand, and we help brands clarify their messaging. We do that through a two-day workshop. So about every month, I'm dealing with about 50 different business leaders, business owners, helping them clarify their messaging on their website and their marketing collateral so it gets a better response. Nice. And in fact, as someone who has been through StoryBrand just recently, actually, I liked it so much, I technically went twice back-to-back weeks. It was that good. And it just kind of worked out that way, but really good stuff that I'm sure we'll get into. So have you always wanted to be a writer? Have you always wanted to kind of go down that path? Yeah, it's been, I've wanted to for a long time. I remember I wanted to in high school. I wrote this little article for my youth group newsletter, and some people stopped me in the hall and said, boy, you're a good writer. And that's the first time anybody had ever complimented me about much of anything. 
And I wanted more of those compliments. So I really put kind of in the back of my head, I wanted to write someday and I wanted to write books. And life just kind of led me down this path where I got involved in publishing and ran a publishing company and saw backstage what the writing life looked like. It didn't look like I thought it did. It was just people who were, you know, really willing to sit down and write a book, which is a hard, long process. And so I wrote a book at night while I was running this company. It sold dismally. and I think my mother bought most of the copies <laughs> and then left that company. That company ended up being sold. And so I started my own little company that really just broke even for a couple of years. And to make ends meet, I wrote another book and I literally just wrote it for rent money. And that book sold, I think it's close to 2 million copies now. So suddenly I was a writer I'm very grateful for that, lived that life, but I've always split, you know, my interests, my passions between running a business and writing books and StoryBrand kind of allows both those worlds to come together because it's all about what to say, right? What do you say on your website is the same sort of thing you're trying to figure out when you're trying to figure out what to write in this chapter, right? right. What do you say? How do you say it? Let's backtrack a little bit. So whenever you write that little newsletter for the youth group, someone affirms it for you. Before that, are you feeling like, I like writing? This is something I feel like I could do. Is this like a high school type thing you're doing? Yeah, is this kind of the stage was, of life? No, it was junior high that I wrote that newsletter. Okay, so we're way back when. We're way back. And then high school, I knew I kind of wanted to be a writer. I also wanted to be, believe it or not, I was a tuba player in high school and went to college on a tuba scholarship. That's a thing? It's a thing. <laughs> I think I'm the only one who's ever done it. And so I wanted to compose music and then rediscovered kind of writing and started studying a lot of poetry and started writing some poetry. And there's something about composing music. And when I write a book, I really do hear it in my mind like music, you know, and you kind of want this part to be tense and this part to be melancholy and this part to, so, you know, it's flowing like music composition. And so I think I kind of put those worlds together. So that desire to compose music or really to create experiences for people is now being channeled through writing. So on the tuba scholarship, are you thinking like that's a possible path is that you join an yeah, orchestra or a band or that's kind of the direction yeah, you're was, going? Yeah, I was in an orchestra and I was tutored by a guy who was in the Houston Symphony. And so I saw this kind of symphony route, but I really was more interested in actually composing music and was naive enough to think I could. There's a level of skill involved in composing music that I don't have and didn't have at the time. But and so I kind of wanted to go that route. Seemed like there's several years on the is the writing just if you're doing anything with it, it may just be this little side thing that I'm messing with here and there. At what point did you feel like now writing's a real possibility? Maybe this is the real path that I need to be going down. Well, I'd only written poetry and that's a different thing. Yeah. And I'd written, you know, over a thousand poems, I had these notebooks that were full of these poems. And so, but I'm glad I'd spent a season, a couple of years doing that because it honed my skill. You know, the real power of writing is to be able to say things economically, you know, to get to the point. And poetry teaches you to do that. I was also memorizing a lot of poems at that time. So early in my career, really grateful that I memorized these poems. And then when I got a job with a publishing company, I started at the bottom as just sort of a sales guy and ended up being president of the company. But when I was the sales guy, this was sort of when email was just kind of starting to catch on. So we would actually send physical letters. Email wasn't something you sent a sales letter. Right. So I would write these physical letters and my secretary used to be an English teacher. So I would print out these letters. She would 
proof them and give them back to me. And I mean, Grant, for a good two, three years, I learned to write sales letters with an English teacher who would bleed all every day. She'd bleed on five or six things that I wrote with this red pen. And, you know, the combination of learning to write economically and learning to write prose through studying and writing poetry combined with sales letters, which is where you're trying to convince somebody of something, combined with an English teacher over your shoulder, I think, you know, that was the early preparation, if you will, for being able to write a book. It seems like there's like on the outside looking in, you would think that they're all very distinct things, writing poetry versus writing sales letters versus writing fiction versus writing a nonfiction. Like they're all very distinct categories, but it sounds like you've kind of found a way or kind of were finding a way at the time to kind of bring them all together under one roof. Well, and it was never intentional. You know, I just read and wrote poetry because it was interesting to me. And I just read and wrote sales letters because I had to, you know, yeah. to, to make ends meet. And I accidentally had a secretary who was an English teacher. So I didn't realize when I started writing books how unbelievably, you know, providential it was that I had that sort of training, especially since I did quit college. I didn't have much college experience. So my formal training happened accidentally. Writing books is really about taking each chapter and trying to convince the reader of something or taking them somewhere. I write memoirs. You know, I'm not trying to sell anybody anything, but, you know, it's all about taking somebody on a journey. And so even if you're writing fiction, you've got to convince, you know, it's sales. You just have to convince the reader that this guy's really bad and he's going to get the good guy. You have to convince them of these things. And so I think studying the way sales work is really important for any writer. Right. So while you're at the publishing company there, you said you started in, in sales, you worked your way up to president. Are you feeling like, all right, this is it. Like I've arrived. This is what I want to do with my life. I'm just going to ride this out until the sunset. Or what are you kind of thinking at that point once you reach the top? I really did. I mean, I got the job as a salesperson at this small company when I was spending a year, I'd moved from Texas to Oregon. I needed to stay in Oregon for one year in order to be a resident, in order to get a break on college tuition. So I got this job right at the end of that year, and I kept thinking, well, I'll go to college. Let me take one more year off. I've got my foot in the door to a publishing company. It's kind of nice. Then by the time I was president of the company, I was just thinking, man, I could leave this job and go get a degree and then enter back into the publishing world, and I won't be able to get the same kind of job that I have now. So I kind of got caught, you know, and ended up not finishing college because I was already in the job market that I wanted to be in and already at the top of that market pretty quickly. So uh, I wasn't really thinking about writing books at that time. I loved publishing. I loved running a business. I loved managing a team. I loved, you know, it felt like I got to get up every morning and go fishing for sales. And so I just fell in love with that. And then the writing thing came back as a hobby. And then when I had a book took off, it became a career at that point. But even when I had a book that was selling, you know, lots and lots of copies and I didn't need to run a business, I missed it. I mean, I really missed the daily getting up and running a business and managing a team. And, you know, I have that entrepreneurial thing in me that desires to build a business. And so I like the fact that now I have this really nice kind of life of running and building a business and then in my spare time, almost as a hobby, I write these books. So it sounds like even today, you consider yourself more of an entrepreneur that happens to write books rather than an author who happens yeah, to run a company. It's 90% entrepreneur, 10% writer. And I, and I like it that way. Yeah. And it sounds like it's really evolved to that as well. 
all that. Uh, it sounds like there was probably a season where it was probably more of the author just trying to figure out that world and maybe getting back to the entrepreneur. So okay, it's really a really publishing company. One of the things I'm curious about is if you're climbing the top, you're the president, you're the top of the game there. Are you feeling like I've peaked early? Like, is this it? Like, is this what I'm supposed to do with the rest of my life? Is I just I keep doing that? Like, there's nowhere else for you to go in terms of just that corporate ladder, so to speak. So are you feeling yeah. like this is it? Are you feeling discontent or how are no, you feeling there? I mean, we were a really small company. We grew while I was there. And so I kept thinking the next route would be to go to another company mm-hmm. and start climbing the corporate ladder in a much larger company. But at the same time, that would have never worked for me because I have such an entrepreneurial spirit that working in a large bureaucracy, probably I wouldn't enjoy it. And so I never thought about, I've already peaked, you know, there was so many other directions that I could go. Gotcha. So you start doing some more writing on the side. Are you... It's not like you're looking for an escape. You're not looking for an outlet. It's just kind of, this is just kind of a hobby. It's just kind of fun. I'm just going to write something. And if, you know, my mom reads it, great. And if nobody else reads it, that's fine. Is that basically what writing was for you at the time? No, I mean, even though it's a hobby, I definitely wanted the books to take off. I wanted people to read them. You know, I was trying to write a book that would be popular. And so, you know, I took it seriously. And also as a publisher, and because I networked with so many other publishers, you get a different view on writing when you work inside a publishing company. You understand that this company exists to make a profit and be sustainable. And you understand that the writers who are valued by publishing companies are writers who sell a lot of books. So that was also a really great realization if I wanted to be a professional writer to understand, hey, this is a business. Your books need to come in in a timely manner. They need to be the kind of books that will sell. And you kind of make this compromise much easier as an artist when you realize the business implications of what you're doing. I remember I was really late with a book once and it was right around the recession and the publishing company had a very hard couple of years and ended up laying a bunch of people off. And I knew that you know my book was anticipated to sell X number of copies and if my book would have come in, people that I was friends with would still have their job. Hmm. So that's, for me, that was an eye-opener saying, hey, you can't be this temperamental artist who's out here floating around writing his art when people are counting on you to feed their kids. You need to turn that thing in so that they can sell it. And so that was a really great eye-opener for me as a professional writer. At what point did you kind of make the transition from, okay, I've got a book. So you said it was your second book that really took off for you? Yes. And so is at that point where it's like, all right, let's get out of publishing and let's focus strictly on this for now? Exactly. Yeah. My own publishing company was just breaking even. And so when Blue Like Jazz took off, when the book took off, I paid back my investor off of the money that the book was making and folded the company and basically spent almost 10 years traveling and speaking and supporting, you know, I wrote other books after that Mm -hmm. and supporting my life as a speaker and a writer. So when you're writing Blue Like Jazz, which is probably one of the books that you're best known for, and I vividly remember it for my own self, reading it in my 20s and it kind of shaping how I thought about things at the time. And when you're writing it, are you feeling like, I think I'm on to something. I feel like I'm speaking for a generation of people. And I feel like this is a framework and a mindset that maybe other people are rattling with. Are you thinking like, well, this is a good book and I hope it sells a few. And if it does, great. And if not, did you realize it was going to become what it did? No. You know, I think I was naive enough when I wrote my first book to think, 
I'm the next John Steinbeck here. This is an amazing book. And that book sold nothing, right? It sold really dismally. So by the time I started writing my second book, I had been humbled, you know, I had been almost embarrassed by the sales of the first one. And I pretty much knew this book wasn't going to sell very many copies and really more wrote it out of a sense of, of the joy of the experience. I mean, it probably had more fun writing that book than I've ever had writing any other book because I wasn't delusional about how many copies it would sell. And, and I enjoyed the process. And, you know, when you call a book blue like jazz, you're not going to sell many copies, right? I mean, I remember having those conversations with the publisher trying to think of a different title and none of us could come up with anything. And so we said, well, let's just call it Blue Light Jazz, what the working title was, and we'll see if your next book sells, right? I mean, they were writing it off too. And, you know, the next thing you know, it's blown up. And that was a huge, huge surprise to me. And I'm grateful for it. So the first book sells horribly. But you like the experience, which I guess is tough to get my mind around in a little ways because you people want to do things that they're good at. People want to do things that they're successful in. Like that feels good. I want to do more of that. And so when you do something and it doesn't go well or it bombs, it's difficult to get back on the horse just because you like horses. So were you, are you thinking like, I'm going to do the second book just because I enjoy it. And if nobody buys it, I'm still good with it. Or are you thinking like, like, why didn't you give up? You know, this was in my 20s, and I didn't have very much money, and I wasn't making strategic decisions then. I was making survival decisions, and so, as we do in our 20s, right? And so, the company that I started was just breaking even. I would pray every month for rent, and I knew if I got a few chapters down of a new book and sent it to a publisher, they could probably give me an advance of about five grand, which would get me through the year in terms of how much, you know, the rest of the year. And so those first few chapters of Blue Like Jazz were literally written in order to get a publishing deal so that I could get about five grand. That was it. I mean, I was still trying to build my little publishing company and I needed some money. And so I knew this little hobby of writing books could get me some money. But you know, if I weren't hard pressed for cash, as Blue Lake Jazz never would have happened. So, you know, it's weird that this book that took off, people say, why'd you write it? I said, for the money, right? Yeah. But I, but I don't mean for millions of dollars. I mean, literally for rent. Like, if you'll pay my rent, I'll write you a book, was kind of the deal. And of course, you know, after that was financially stable. And that's probably when my more of a literary career took off. I had the time to read and think and, you know, be calculated in terms of how I wrote and what I wrote about in post Blue Like Jazz in those years. I think there's people probably listening that may be in a similar spot of going like, my back's against the wall. I've got to make this work. I swung once and missed. But it's also easier to just, I mean, you could have just folded the publishing company and just got a, a real job. So why did you not do that? I sat down with my pastor at the time, a guy named Rick McKinley. And I told him, I said, look, you know, there's an insurance company here in town that I could go get a job at, or I can write a book and be a writer. And he said, do you want to have a family someday? And I said, yes. And so this was 10, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe. He said, well, let's do some math here. He said, you know, if you want to buy a home and raise kids and all that kind of stuff, you know, it takes 
a much more steady income than what you're currently making. So we came up with this number of $50,000. Like if you could make $50,000 a year as a rider, do it. Other than that, if you want a family, you need to go get a job. And, you know, he was just giving me some ideas. He wasn't like dictating, telling me what to do. And I thought that stuck in the back of my brain of you need to get to this point where you're making 50 grand. And I turned in those three chapters to an agent who turned them into a publisher. And a couple of publishers were very interested in the book. They clearly recognized it as a better book than the previous book I'd written. And got a call from my agent. And the agent said, Thomas Nelson is offering you $50,000 for this book. Wow. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. At the time, for me, that was, you know, not only was it the exact number that my pastor and I had written down, but it was just a phenomenal amount of money in my mid-20s. You know, I was going to be able to, I mean, I could stretch 50 grand for two years at that time. And so that to me was more than just me saying, I think I'll choose to be a writer. It really felt like God was saying, hey, I want you to do this for a little while. And that, I don't mean to creep out your listeners, but I do have this kind of faith journey that's part of this that is often a mystery to me still too. But I remember thinking, this is what God wants me to do, so I'm going to do it. Yeah, that's such a difficult balance of this thing. Like, I really love this thing, and I love writing, and I think I can make this work, but I also want to eat and live indoors. And so I got the practical thing that I may try this, and it may be this epic success, or this may be this colossal failure, and I just don't know. And at the same time, I'm walking this tightrope of I have to survive. And so yeah, it's... and I got to tell you, you know, I think what my pastor was trying to tell me and was trying to be diplomatic about it, was you need to go get a job. That's what he's really trying to do. So him writing that number down on a piece of paper that we came to together was him basically saying, go get a job, because yeah. you're not going to make 50 grand writing a book. And I remember having this other friend, Laura Gibson, and she wanted to be a singer-songwriter, and she didn't even know how to play the guitar. And mm-hmm. I'm like, Laura... You know, you're in your mid-20s. You don't know how to play the guitar. You want to be a singer-songwriter all of a sudden. You know, you need to go get a job, (laughs) basically. And Laura, right before our eyes, I mean, everybody was telling her that, that this is a crazy dream. Laura, before our eyes, took guitar lessons, learned to play guitar, got to be very good, then learned to play the banjo, got to be very good. And next thing you know, out of Portland, Oregon, I mean, she's selling out venues of 1,000, 2,000 people, and she's on national public radio, and... I think she's since, you know, kind of retired that part of her life. But everybody was telling her she couldn't do it. And people were telling me I couldn't do it. And the reality is, statistically, you don't have much of a shot. Yeah. But, you know, your statistics, your percentage chance of succeeding goes really down if you don't actually do it. And these days, I've learned that lesson. And I've learned that you're always going to be surrounded by people who say you can't do it. And they're good people. Sometimes these people are our spouses, right? But the only guys who win are the guys who get up and do it anyway. But there is no insurance there. There's no guarantee. And, yeah. But I do think if you have that stubborn part of yourself that is just going to keep going and is never going to take no for an answer, you know, I've seen statistically those guys have a pretty good percentage shot of making it. Yeah. And, and so I, and these days, you know, even starting a company, Starting a branding company, people were like, wait, what do you know about branding? You know, and you're a writer and these sorts of things. And I just knew, I mean, I deeply knew, no, we have something really valuable here and it'll be valuable in the marketplace and all this kind of stuff. And 
you know, we've seen the fruit of that in our first couple of years of business. It's just exploding on us. And so, I, you know, I did learn early on, you just keep going. You know, I, to be crass, you keep peeing around your territory. You keep staking claim to this. And pretty soon, people around you begin to honor it. And they begin to, your identity in their mind begins to change. And you become the person that you're trying to become. Yeah, I know that a lot of your work since then has really helped people to kind of find that and get to that point of figuring out what they were put on this planet to do. And a lot of that revolves around storyline. So give us kind of a snapshot. What is storyline and how do you help people figure out what that next thing is for them? Well, there's two divisions of the company. One is storyline and one is story brand. And story brand deals with businesses and storyline helps people create their life plan using the elements of story. And so we do a conference in Chicago every year that people have fallen in love with and we've fallen in love with it. But you just come and we study what it takes to live a meaningful life and then we help you create a plan in order to do that. And, you know, those things are, you know, one of the things that it takes to experience a deep sense of meaning is what we're talking about, Grant. It's having a project that you're working on that pulls you out of bed in the morning, something that necessitates your existence. That's one of the reasons that families are so great. It's so great to be in a family because I've got to get up today and go to work to feed my family. And we think of that as a burden, but really it's an incredible component to experiencing a deep sense of meaning is this idea that people need you to accomplish something or their welfare goes down. And so Storyline helps people identify those components and move into them. Can you give us a quick nutshell on like how would you go about finding that? Because I think that's a spot a lot of people are in of going, I'm doing this job. I don't hate it. I don't love it. If someone would just tell me what I'm supposed to be doing, I would gladly, I would love to get up on Monday morning excited about what I'm doing and excited about that next thing. And I know that that's out there and I see other people finding theirs. And that's great for Don or Grant or whoever who's found their reason for existence, the reason to get up. I can't freaking find mine and I don't even know where to go looking for it. Like, what do we say to them? Well, there's a book called Man's Search for Meaning by a guy named Viktor Frankl, and it sold about 15 million copies. And he identifies three aspects that you need to have in your life to experience a deep sense of meaning. The first is what we just talked about, having a project to work on that needs you to show up. The second is having a community of people who care about you, to basically have a team or a family or a community that enjoys your existence and you exchange affection with. And the third is a redemptive perspective on your suffering. And what that means is that when the negative challenges happen to you, you see them as hard and difficult, but also as a blessing because challenges do so much to improve the quality of our lives. They really shape us. And, you know, you can't have a great story without challenges. Now, that's the five-minute version of <laughs> Victor Frankl's book and of our conference, which takes two days to unpack. But I think the real question you're asking is, you know, what if somebody doesn't have that? What if they don't wake up and love their job or all of that? What do they do? And, you know, I'm not wired that way. You're not wired that way. I'm very entrepreneurial. I don't need people to tell me what to do. I will go find it. But I'm surrounded by a lot of people who are wired that way. And the reality is I can't do what I do without them. They are grinders. They get it done. They're details people. They love serving on a team. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm very aware of as I manage a team is honoring these guys and seeing them and seeing each of us as a component of one brain, right? Mm -hmm. We act like one person going and doing things. I'm a visionary guy. I'm an inspirational guy, not a details guy. So 
the details part of my brain is, you know, on my staff and I honor them as such. And we operate as one team. And those guys, what I'll tell you, they love their job. Morale is very high. But I think it's because they work within a culture where their skill sets are honored and valued. And so some of us, we think we don't like our jobs, but really what we don't like is that we're on a team that sees us as a cog in a wheel. And that's a culture problem that would need to change. And I would say, you know, that life is too short to work in an environment like that. And as safely as possible, start putting feelers out for a different environment where you're not being used, you're being appreciated and valued as part of a team. And I think, you know, a lot of us will complain about our jobs or what we do, but we're not doing anything about it. We're not out there searching for what's next. And I would tell you the statistical chance of you finding a job where you're honored and valued and feel a deep sense of meaning goes up if you go look for it, right? And for sure. uh, and not settle and not react to life, but rather impose your will on the life around you rather than just react to it. And I think you kind of alluded to something there that's so valuable of surrounding yourself with people who are doing work that they love, the work that they're into and they're passionate exactly. about. And, you know, to be honest with you, and we've talked about this on the show, that that's a big reason we moved to Nashville is people that are in our space and bubble and doing what we do, like they get it. Like I don't have to explain what it is that I do and try to give some bunch of context to it that doesn't make any sense. So being willing to be around those people, and maybe that requires a move. Maybe that's just getting outside of your normal circle of friends and finding who is living a better story? Who is living the kind of life that I would want to learn from and emulate? They are out there. They do exist and your people are there, but it's oftentimes going out and trying to find them rather than just sitting and waiting that hopefully they magically stumble across you. That's exactly it. And you know, I hope your listeners are really inspired by your story. Actually picking up your family and moving somewhere in order to find that I think is huge. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to cross paths with a few people, you know, every so often at conferences once or twice a year at an airport. It's another thing to say, no, no, I want to do life with people that are like me, that are in the same stage of life and business and life and family and all of that. And it makes a massive, massive difference. So we've talked a little bit about from the personal side of it, but also there's this whole business side of it. How do you apply story to business? And I know that this has been a massive, massive influence for me, for our own business, how we do things, because I think there's People that are personally searching for what's my reason for existence. And then other people are like, I found it and I know what I want to do in terms of work and specifically in business. business. I'm trying to figure out how to execute on that. And uh, so I want to talk some more about story brand, how do you apply story to our work and specifically to businesses. So we're going to talk about this a little more in the bonus round. We're just going to tease that out for now and uh, let people ponder that, chew on that. So in the meantime, though, if people are interested in finding out more about you, checking out books that you've done in the past or checking out more about Storyline, and we're going to talk more about story brand in just a second, where can we go to find those out. Yeah, you definitely would just go to storylineblog.com, storylineblog.com. And we'd love to see you in Chicago in November. We're going to have a conference. We're all going to get together called the Storyline Conference. And that's where you create your life plan based on experiencing this deep sense of meaning. Cool. Awesome. We'll definitely link up to Storyline. And then, uh, like I said, we're going to be talking about story brand, how you apply that to businesses, whether you're an entrepreneur or not. I think you're going to find a lot of meaning and value out of this conversation we're going to have. So you can download that, the bonus material over at GrahamBaldwin.com. So we will see you over in the uh, bonus round. Sound good? Sound great. All 
All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that chit-chat with Don Miller of uh, Storyline, Story Brand. Also, make sure, like I mentioned at the top of the show, that you download the bonus material where Don and I, we stick around for a few extra minutes. We talk about how you apply story to your business, your company, your career. Really good stuff. We also talk about a free bonus he's giving away, a bonus within the bonus. It's a very meta thing. But uh, he tells us all about that in the bonus material. So you're not going to want to miss that. A really cool resource he put together for our listeners, for you, because he likes you. And we like you. We want to hook you up with that. So you can find out more about that within the bonus material. You're going to want to download that. Again, you can find it at the link within the show notes of the app, wherever you may be listening to this. Or you can go to grantbaldoncom slash Don Miller. It takes you right to this episode and can get all kinds of goodness there and find out more about the bonus that he's giving away within the bonus. All right. I think that wraps up today's episode, boys and girls. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us. Really do appreciate it. would love for you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Subscribe to the show if you haven't already. And uh, we'd love to connect with you anytime. Anything we can do to help you on your journey to find and do work you love, we want to help you with that. So we will catch you next week, my friends. You're awesome. So my friends back here with the Jordan Harbinger of Art of Charm podcast. Jordan, I'm curious, just outside looking in, you do a podcast that you do three days a week. You've been doing this for like 87 years. You're like the godfather of podcasting. I don't know. You just, you're old. But then you got like this big successful seven figure business that you do. I'm curious. There's a lot of people that are listening. We're all busy. We all have a lot going on. How do you manage it? How do you like keep your head above water? Yeah, it's actually not something I was always good at at all, like most skills. But here's the thing. A lot of people ask me, how come you're super productive, which is kind of a relatively new last you know, three, four years success for me to have. And here's the unsexiest tip ever. I'm really careful with my time and the way that I am that is I use a calendar. And most people who are searching for productivity tips, they're always looking for this app, that app, and the other app, and the other way to save time. But whenever I dig down with them, if they hire me to consult or they're a friend of mine and ask me for a tip, they never use a calendar because they're like, oh, I only have a few appointments. It's like simple things like that. Like just having that calendar in place makes a huge, huge difference. So Because there's no decision fatigue. Yeah, for sure don't have to think about what's coming next, what goes next. And yeah, good stuff, dude. All right, man. Again, I'd encourage everyone to stop by, check out artofcharm.com, check out what they've got going, download the podcast, subscribe to it, all that good jazz. You can find that at iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you may be listening to this podcast or any show that you may be listening to on your drive to work at the gym, wherever you may be, definitely add Art of Charm to the mix. Thanks for listening to the How Did You Get Into That podcast with Grant Baldwin. Don't forget to visit grantbaldwin.com for all the show notes and links discussed in today's episode. We'll see you next time.